Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome to another episode of the Doing the Thing podcast. I am joined, as always, by my buddy, Jason. How are you doing, Jason? Doing well, man. It's Friday. I've got a giant honeydew list to take care of, but I'm excited today to talk about some of this stuff. Man, I was looking at some of the pre-reading, and I learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot more. Yeah, speaking of honeydews, I uh, agreed to do wood flooring in one room, which has led like a, um, you know, I don't know, like a like an outbreak across the entire house. So if you hear an echo, everybody, I apologize. I have a completely empty office with new wood flooring in it. Um, sounds like an orchestra chamber. It's a little weird. <laughs> hey, I kind of like it, man. It's it sounds like you're in a like a Ninja Turtle layer or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anybody who has listened to us. You know that we're fans of the obscure. We love looking back in history. Like Jason's excellent episode last week on uh, the pig war, um, which I'm sure you know most of you listening, if you didn't tune into that episode, may have never heard of. Um, it's a cool story, and um, so is the story of the 1904 Olympics held in St. Louis. Um, and there's a purpose to telling this story, but it's just a funny story to begin with. So, Jason, when you think about the Olympics, what kind of vision comes to mind? Excellency. Yeah, excellency in athletic performance and also, you know, um, integrity. Integrity, yeah. Pride. Don't you see, like, that guy running with that torch, right? And just people like standing ovation screaming as they light the Olympic torch. And all these athletes have dedicated their whole life to this one pursuit, this being their moment, right? Um, not so much so in 1904. <laughs> so, not so much. Not yeah. so, At least with one, a couple of individuals. Yeah, yeah. So in particular, um, it was the marathon. It was the, the, the marathon in the 1904 um, Olympics that, you know, caught our attention. And so let's first kind of describe for you the track. Now, when you think about the Olympics, you think about state-of-the-art track. But in fact, this one was um, kind of uh, formed out of the dirt. And there was just a remarkable amount of dust that was kicked up during this race. In fact, um, at least one... A participant had to be hospitalized because he had infections in his lungs from all the dust that got kicked up from his track. Um, Not to mention know. no water. Yeah, right. So I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why the organizer of the event also decided that he wanted to see what effects dehydration would have on the runners. What a time to do it during the Olympics. Right, right. So, yeah, they, they uh, withheld water from the people running around the Susky Tracks. A marathon. <laughs> um, so, let's talk about the winners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so obviously there's going to be some shenanigans. You know, there's, you're on a dusty road. There's no water. You probably can't really see a lot of the runners. So, so <laughs> it's going to test your integrity a little bit. Yeah, in fact, it did. Um, so the fourth place winner was a guy named Andarin Carbajal. Um, and Andarin, if I'm saying his name correctly, I hope I am, uh, represented Cuba. And literally, the guy ran across the entire country of Cuba 
to raise money to come to the 1904 Olympics, which would label him as a pretty cool dude, right? Until he gets to America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, um, and, and, and the Reen, and the Reen comes to America, and right before the race, he comes to America and proceeds to lose 100% of that money gambling. <laughs> he shows up for the race in dress pants and dress shoes because that's all he had. He had only what he had on his back. And he actually finished the race in dress pants and dress shoes. So that's place number four. He did not cheat, though. He actually ran the whole race. He actually ran the whole race, yeah, in dress shoes. And, and, and this picture, it just, I mean, this story does not do his picture justice. I think we're going to have to put the picture in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. Yeah, it's just so, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> I like the mustache the most, though. The shorts <laughs> and the mustache, that's, I mean, that's priceless. That uh, 1980s porn star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so then you have second place. And second place went to a guy named Thomas Hicks. And like, uh, I want to call out, you know, I don't want to call out a country, but there's certain countries we can think of that over the course of the Olympics have been caught up in doping scandals, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Russia, China. Uh, comrades. You know, uh, not, not naming names, but <clears throat> Russia. Um, <laughs> so... Thomas Hicks, and I don't know what the performance enhancement technologies were back in 1904, but apparently they weren't all that developed. Because um, literally, this is what his team did for him. They prepared this mixture of eggs and strychnine. Um, which, if you don't know, strychnine is rat poison. Right. So <laughs> it, they fed him a combination of eggs and rat poison the day of the race. And as it turned out, he took second place because his trainers, he had such bad cramps that they literally picked him up and carried him over the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Olympics we're talking about. The, it's like a, like a circus, man. At least he got some protein there, but he's got, a, you know, he got his timing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so then the winner. Fred Lowers. Um, <laughs> this is the funniest thing of all. I'm just picturing this whole thing happening. So I imagine, you know, well, I don't imagine. I know that when you don't have adequate water and electrolytes and salts and things like that, especially in the marathon, what happens? You're going to bonk, man. You're going to crash. You're going to crash. You're going to cramp, right? Mm -hmm. Muscles are going to contract. You're going to be in a lot of pain. And in fact, that's what happened to Fred, our friend Fred. So... Because he was cramping, he opted to hitchhike and get a ride in a car <laughs> to, <laughs> to just before the finish line. And then they flung open the passenger door and this whole field of dust and whatever else. And he jumped out and left across the, the finish line and won. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, think he, I think he deserves that gold medal just out of creativity and balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Apparently there was at least one witness to this, and his answer to what happened was, oh, I was just kidding around, which I don't know how that relates to taking first place and accepting the medal, but he, that's what he said. 
it was just a joke. I was just pretending to get in that car, you know. He's just seeing things. <laughs> Nothing to yeah. see here. Nothing to see. Jedi mind trick. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, today's topic is around cheating and ethics, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, we found this story and then there's this other interesting one. And this just coincidentally happens to be a Ukrainian. Um, so back to the whole comrade thing, but mm-hmm. his name, if I'm going to pronounce this right, Boris Onyshenko. And um, mm-hmm. do you know about uh, pentathletes, what they competed? I always forget all of the events in it. Um, and the only reason I know what his event was in there is because I had to look it up. Um, but fencing, right? That's one of them. Fencing. There's a running, a running event. Right. Um, um, javelin? Yeah. Shot put? No, shooting, swimming, ride, horseback riding, cross-country run, and the infamous fencing. Okay. Okay. That's so weird. Well, you know. You train for that. I don't know. <laughs> but credit the guy for ingenuity, at least, right? Uh, so yeah. what he did is, um, I don't know, I can't remember the exact name of what the fencing sword is called. It's like an Ule or Ule or something French, whatever that right. is. Just picture that long sword and then it has a handle on it, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And apparently what he did was rig the handle of his fencing sword such that he could trigger an electronic score, the electronic scoring system without actually registering a hit on his opponent. Now this is past the 1904 Olympics, right? This is, uh, this is another, this is a little bit uh, more recent, right? Like the 70s. 1976 Montreal Olympics. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know how you do that, but apparently, like while he's fencing, he could like trigger his finger and get a point. <laughs> and I guess the flaw in that logic is, while you might be getting a point, I would think your opponent definitely knows that you didn't touch them with your sword, right? Right, right. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get caught pretty easily on that one. <laughs> in fact, he did. Um, in fact, he did, and uh, he was uh, he persona non grata forever in Olympics. He was a past silver silver medalist, and apparently that got stripped from him based on cheating. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah, and I can almost like um, I can almost hear the villain from Scooby Doo cartoons going, "I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you dastardly kids." Right. Right. <laughs> As I pull his fencing mask off and his old man withers, you know. <laughs> so, you know, these are fun stories to tell, but what the heck do they have to do with today's uh, world and why are we telling them? And the reason why is really our topic today is around ethics and around cheating. And let's bring this to the corporate world for just a moment. Um, over the years, there's been a steady stream of scandals, right, in the news, brands like Sears and General Dynamics. HCA healthcare. Most re- recently, do you know about the DNA testing company? Right. Just say that again. D- DNA testing. DNA testing company, where the CEO is looking at potential prison time. I don't. I don't know about that. Yeah, Theranos. 
There it is, the name of the company. Um, and unethical business practices, why do they happen? And I fully believe, and we'll talk about some practical examples, but I fully believe that companies just like these athletes, they don't necessarily set out to cheat. Well, maybe they don't necessarily, right? Because he rigged up the thing. But what they see yeah, is totally. perhaps set out to cheat in business. Things like razor thin profit margins, things like cutthroat competition, things like bloated work weeks, high pressure sales environments, job insecurity, right? The continual possibility of downsizing, all those pressures drive people to do things they might not normally do in order to what they feel is protect themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it's expectations at the, the corporate level that kind of spawns this stuff. You know, I don't think a, a CEO or an entrepreneur or anybody that starts these companies, I don't think that they go out wanting to cheat the system. But, you know, what if it's their number two? What if it's their employees? You know, they have these expectations and, and maybe the guy at the top doesn't realize that he's got, you know, too high aspirations of his, you know, and, and nobody wants to say anything. They just want to meet those numbers. They want to meet those expectations. Or they get that temptation of, you know, in the in case of like somebody like Sears with the, the auto mechanics, you know, they got paid mostly on commission on parts. So they're getting sales commissions. So they're not giving away these parts. They're actually just writing them up in the invoices on the repairs, which is what, you know, Sears got in a lot of trouble. Uh, so there's like all these little temptations out there and, and just miscommunication. And it, it's just a slippery slope. There's a lot of, you know, small little things that snowball. Yeah. So um, when you think about different roles in the company, like take the CEO, take the CIO, take the CFO or controller, which of those three would you think would be most likely to hold to standards of ethics? I think all of them, right? You, you, I think that would be the, the proper answer. Yeah, that would be the right answer. But <laughs> do you think that like, all of these things, when it comes to financial performance, converge at the controller or CFO level, right? That's got to be the CFO, yeah. Yeah, so you would think that that, above everybody else, that might be the last person to participate in shenanigans, I think you call them. I think they have like the, uh, the most to lose, most at stake, because they're mm -hmm. like kind of the, the focal point there. Yeah, because the CEO can say, I didn't know he was cooking the books. I never saw it. I didn't directly do this right. The CIO has that same kind of uh, slippery non-culpability, but the controller CFO is the one that signs. Yeah. So yeah. Tulane University did a study and they set up this role play exercise just to test the ethics. And <laughs> two out of five controllers were willing to commit fraud in this role play exercise. And half of the top executives were willing. And in fact, 87% made at least one fraudulent decision within this situation. <laughs> That's percent. Yeah. So like almost everybody's going to do it is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Almost everybody like, did. So is this like, like deliberate, like very deliberate or do they, justify it as, you know, this is like a means to an end and 
just as actual, just whatever regular business practices. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a spectrum, right? And the spectrum runs from something as uh, semi harmless as claiming time off to be sick when you're actually not sick or filing a, you know, a claim for disability when you actually weren't hurt. Right. And there's on that end of the spectrum, there's that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, of course, we'll talk about Enron in just a minute. And, <laughs> you know, but somewhere in that spectrum, 87% were willing to make what they knew was an unethical decision in order to drive whatever expectations the company had for them. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. How about this? Um, so we've got the executive team, right? We've got two out of five controllers who should be the purest of all. We've got 87% of all executives. We've got... 50% of the top executives willing to be unethical. What about the workers? Um, the American Society of Ethics Officers Association, which is a mouthful, admittedly, um, surveyed workers and they found that 50, 56% of all workers felt pressure to act unethically or illegally. And 48% of them admitted that they engaged in one or more unethical acts within the past year. Wow. <laughs> That's so, so no wonder people just kind of shudder a little bit when you talk about corporate America, you know, they, they get a little, they have that feeling, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate that it's got to be that way. Um, why is that? You know, and, and that's an excellent question because in surveys, it's been found that 60% of all companies have an ethics policy. And further, 95% um, of all tech companies actually conduct ethics training as part of their onboarding and their ongoing education. So, you know, how do these things occur? Well, they started to talk to the employees and the employees indicated that 60% of them at least felt more pressure for results than they did five years ago. 40% of them said they felt more pressure for results than they did even a year ago. So is it this, um, I want to call it the heroin addiction to quarterly profits that companies go through that cause employees to feel like this is a justified step to meet that quarterly number to keep the company alive, to keep my job alive. Is it perhaps that? I would argue maybe, yeah. Yeah, it could be. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it kind of goes back to that that you know it's um nobody wants to communicate up that you know it's not a feasible thing to do but so they're going to you know make it happen by all means necessary yeah so maybe i don't know really um the point of these stories is for all of us that are listening to just really step back and think for a moment because the realities are and i've done a ton of research as i know you have jason into companies and why they fail and why they succeed. And surprisingly, the biggest, you know, the sixth largest uh, corporate bankruptcy in American history, Enron, was the result of a very small decision. And that small unethical decision led to many more unethical decisions. What ends up happening is it's this little step you take over that cliffside that you're saying, I'm just going to do this this once. 
And then the problem becomes, you then have to cover up that past thing that you did, as well as continue to produce the results that were produced by that unethical move. And it becomes this momentum building rock that grows into a snowball that grows into a building size, you know, plummeting force that eventually kills your company as it did Enron. What was that one, what was that one uh, decision that they made? Yeah. So it's interesting. So looking back at Enron, um, it was formerly a company called Houston oil and gas. And, uh, for those of you who don't know, you probably, most of you do, but um, Enron was in the uh, energy speculation business, right? They bought and sold oil, gas, electricity. Um, and for a long period of time, they were very successful. Um, they hired a team of speculators uh, to, you know, uh, place positions on uh, electricity, et cetera. Um, but they had a very ethical CEO in place. and. These guys, you know, because they're on commission and because there's potential millions to be earned, as salespeople do, they would try to push the envelope. But he had very strict best practices in place, especially as it related to revenue recognition. Um, unfortunately for Houston Oil and Gas, which became Enron in this whole transition, that ethical CEO retired. And mm. a man named Jeffrey Skilling was nominated for the position. And at this time, um, you know, Houston Oil and Gas becoming Enron had had some peaks and valleys in their financial performance. So when they transitioned to the Enron world, there were much higher benchmarks set for the company. And perhaps that was why the prior CEO decided that it was his time to go. Um, but Jeffrey Skilling was facing some pretty aggressive revenue targets. Um, hmm. They were considered very favorable on Wall Street at the time. And there was certainly some pressure for him to maintain that favorable status on Wall Street. So, you know, he began to think about what can I do to deliver those kinds of results? And as a stipulation to his contract, he insisted that the company adopt what's called mark to market revenue recognition. Yep. Um, Mark-to-market <laughs> yep. is not so uh, unfamiliar to markets like security um, and investments mm -hmm. and things like that, but absolutely in the energy sector uh, really wasn't you know, a, a prominent revenue model. Um, and it's different than the cash recognition model that says when you sell something and you make a profit, you recognize that sale and that profit. Right, um, right. Mark to market's kind of more of a projection of a profit, almost. It is, it is a projection. It is um, chicken bones. <laughs> it's the tossing of chicken bones. It's playing Russian roulette or roulette. Um, yeah. Like, if we do this, we might have that. Yeah. So literally, I'm going to read an example here. Um, this is a great example. So let's say... Enron builds, um, this is an example of Mark Mark. Let's say Enron builds a power plant facility, and that power plant facility costs $80 million to build. Um, but let's say they haven't broken ground on that facility. They've just bought the land and determined that they're going to build that facility. Okay. Under normal best accounting practices, they would take the loss on the investment into the building, 
when the building was up and running and began to produce revenues, they would be amortizing that loss against the revenue. Correct. Yeah. Right. And then uh, they could start projecting revenue once they're back up and running. Yeah, exactly. But here's what mark to market. Um, mark to market allowed them to project the revenue they expected to make from the facility that wasn't built and recognize 100% of that revenue before the building was built. So they're projecting like years and years down the road <clears throat> what yeah. that potential revenue would have been. So, you know, imagine a dartboard. Um, imagine a dartboard and on it you have numbers in the millions, right? And you could just literally, if you're Enron, you could close your eyes and whip a dart at the dartboard. And if it landed on 100 million, you could go, my new power plant's gonna make $100 million. Book them, Dano. So investors are, are like, oh, wow, Enron's doing freaking great. What the hell? Look at this. Yeah. You know, keep, keep, uh, keep buying more stock. Keep, uh, keep, all, keep your money right there in their funds. And yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, and uh, I'm pulling this from memory, but um, so Jeffrey Skilling had a willing partner in Andy Fastow, I believe was the uh, chief financial officer's name. So okay. who these guys, and you know, I don't know for sure that they had a dartboard, but they certainly had some sort of projection mechanism where they would say, well, okay, we're going to build this and this will produce a hundred million profit. Therefore this month, you know, a hundred million dollar profit. Drop the mic, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> And they became, as you can imagine, a darling of Wall Street because their profit projections were just exponentially beyond anybody else in that sector. And they yeah. became just this monster of success, right? But behind the scenes, Andy Fastow had to take those losses and somehow balance them, right? Yeah. So how do you, um, <clears throat> how do you keep that away from, you know, Inspectors, right? How do you how do you cover that up? Well, how would you think they covered it up? Man, I have no idea. I don't I don't know how you cover up like a hundred million dollar loss. <laughs> so it, it's really interesting how this whole thing evolved. So the initial decision to move to mark to market opened up the door for these creative revenue recognition strategies and. They started very small, but then they got aggressive because this month they do something small that blows up their profits. Well, we know how corporations work. Next quarter, they're looking at last quarter going, you need to beat last quarter. Well, how are you going to do that if you made up last quarter? You're going to have to make up this quarter, right? Right. Um, so this thing just grew exponentially. And Andy Fastow, who I think is out of prison now, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he is. Um, the chief financial officer for Enron began opening up these subsidiary, shady subsidiary companies. And what he would do was move the losses from these mark-to-market quote-unquote investments around hundreds of shell companies. Wow. Literally bouncing them like a basketball between companies so that maybe, you know, Enron showed a profit, but XYZ Corporation took a loss that time. And then XYZ might get the benefit of some mark-to-market stuff, but then that loss was shifted over to ZYX company. 
And on it went across these hundreds of companies. And let's look at the end result of what happened through these progressions of unethical decisions. The state of California was nearly bankrupt by Enron. They had bought all the power. They were rolling blackouts because they had speculated on, on energy that they couldn't fulfill. And they were literally stealing energy from other states and balancing it, just like this market strategy, until finally they were caught. That's crazy. Right? Right. It, and, you know, I've, I've always heard of Enron. I've always heard of, of the scandal is a big deal. Um, I never actually took a deep dive and actually tried to learn about the actual mechanisms that caused it. So I'm glad we're talking about this today because that's, I mean, I love learning shit on this podcast. I love it. But man, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Yeah. And I guess, you know, as I was, so I ran across the Olympic article and it got me to thinking about these other things. And really at the end of the day, here's what I do want to say. I want to say that we all face these little decisions that we can justify in our own mind are probably okay, right? It's not a bad thing. I'm doing it for a good reason. I probably won't get caught. Whatever it may be, we all face those little things. And it's in those moments that we should be thinking about prison. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as a business owner. Wow. We should be thinking about bankrupting the state of California. We should be thinking about um, two out of five accountants or uh, CFOs or controllers are willing to do fraudulent activities. 50% uh, of CEOs and 87% actually did. We should know that the majority, if not almost all, executives are willing to make these shortcuts in order to meet their profit expectations. And there will come a point when we are asked to, or something is implied to us to participate in those kinds of things. And we should just think about prison bars when we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that guy getting a, on a dusty marathon track, getting out of a car and jumping across first place line because you know what? He did win and he did get the medal. And then since 1904, he's been an example of one of the greatest Olympic cheats in history. Yeah, so you're always going to have an asterisk next to your name, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that, that. Brings up another topic. I mean, what kind of a, a legacy do you want to uh, leave? You know, do you want to, you know, follow that slippery slope of little white lies or little indiscretions or little tiny, small, but illegal activities and let them aggregate and, you know, you make the news in a bad way? <laughs> or do you want to have, you know, uh, clear ethics in your business? I, I think we make mistakes every day. Everybody makes mistakes. And sometimes, you know, illegal things happen on the job that we don't even know that they're illegal. You know, so we have to also educate ourselves. We have to know that we're in compliance, especially as a business owner, uh, especially as an employee too, you know, because who's the uh, an unethical employer? Who's the first person that they're going to throw under the bus? It's going to uh, be an employee. Themselves? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> this is going to be an employee. So we also have to protect ourselves uh, by, by educating ourselves on, on ethics and our day-to-day -day duties, whether it's as that business owner or an employee. Um, yeah. that, that got me thinking about a lot of things, you know. It's like, let me, let me 
me do a self audit and, and see, you know, where I'm at. Yeah. And I think the biggest lesson is this, right? The, um, we think of, um, the end story of Enron, right? We think mm -hmm. of the Olympic guy getting out of the car and running across the finish line, but that's not really what we should be thinking about. What we should be recognizing is that there are always these very little slippery slopes that we allow ourselves to step on. And it is a very easy little decision to do those things that lead to very big things. Again, in the case of Enron, that one decision to go to mark to market led them to do a couple things that were very small that increased revenue. And because they increased revenue, they couldn't go back and reverse that decision. So what they had to do was what? Cover it up, right? Mm -hmm. And in the process of covering up that very little decision that they made led to bigger and bigger and broader and wider uh, elements of theft until, and I know you looked this up, what was the losses approximately, you remember? It was like 67 billion. Billion with a B. Yeah, with a B. That's crazy. Yep. That's probably more than the state budget of California, I would say. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have to Google that one too. I don't know. I'm sure it is. Yep. So, you know, as important as we talk about um, incremental change, right? The, the doing of one new thing different today can snowball into exponentially greater things, right? Just the little habits that we have every day. We also have little choices every day. Those little incremental choices can lead us to prison bars if we're not careful. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Man, you know what I'm reading right now? I'm, I'm reading Atomic Habits right now. And, you know, it's incremental on the positive side too. You know, we can start, you know, after we do that self audit, we can start implementing some of those positive habits into our, in our day-to-day -day lives and our practices and our businesses and our jobs and things like that. You know, that's all it takes is that, that small little thing in a positive direction to, to kind of get the momentum forward in a different way, you know, as well, kind of farther away from those prison bars, yeah, <laughs> whether I mean, they're figuratively or literally. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it, it is the establishment of barriers, right? This is what I will. And this is what I will not do. What am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do it is a question. And it's a question I think we all should ask ourselves and especially, you know, hearing these stories, um, sure got me thinking too. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Well, this is a good conversation today. Yeah. Rock. I love these story time episodes. <laughs> good because you're up next week, buddy. Oh man, I got to think of a topic. I hope, uh, I hope somebody on, on Facebook or social media gives me some ideas. Yeah. Do my work for me guys. Help me out. <laughs> Uh, great conversation, and I hope that those of you listening enjoyed it. I hope you'll share it with folks um, and look for another story time session next week. 100%, man. All right, brother. I hope you have a great weekend and uh, get some of those floors done, all right? Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Talk soon, buddy. <laughs>